Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Green. Hi. Hi. <laughs> and, we're, and we're joined by our two recurring hosts, co-hosts. Micah. And Peter from the Midwest. How are you guys doing? Good. Doing great. Excited. It's- it's nice to have you all here. Uh, so we're back again to discuss a really interesting topic. I'm going to pass it off to Patrick to intro us. Yeah, hang on. Before before I do, I have two notes. One is that I am on fire because our heat is turned up too high right now. So I apologize <laughs> if, I, if I pass out and hit the fucking desk while we're recording this. Two is uh, I had a great time on that press episode with you. And listening back to it, I was really happy with the fact that we tried that character out and we tried that character out because of listener feedback from listeners. So if you're listening to this episode and you want to hear us try something we haven't touched yet, please do write in because we do find opportunities to talk about it. And this was one of those ones where we primarily went to this topic because it had been suggested a bunch of times, but neither Jamie nor I really felt like we were going to do a great job, but we're like, let's sort of, you know, give it a shot. And since then, I know you've well, I lost all interest. Let's just be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's like no, I don't want to do it. Jamie, yeah, yeah. Well, well, you didn't even lose interest. You just said fucking no. You're like, mm, 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 mm. I was like, we have to now. I've really told people, but you know what? Now we people did are it. writing in and they're saying, I know we're getting all these great comments about it. And and so so thank you, listeners, for pushing us to try something we wouldn't have otherwise done. Keep that coming. But in the meantime, we have a show that was <clears throat> my idea for once mm-hmm. tonight. Although it was inspired by it was inspired by one of Jamie's ideas from our uh, Perfect Organism sister show where a few weeks ago we decided to do a roundtable conversation on uh creature feature horror films that actually frighten us. Seating this within the legacy of Giger's Alien of course, but talking about other you know, opportunities and films where we felt really genuine fear and some of the reasons why that might have been the case, vis-a-vis especially Giger's alien design. So for this tonight, you know, we were thinking about how Blade Runner really presents one of the most fully realized, tactile, deeply thought out science fiction realities we have access to, right? We're going to probably do a two-parter here tonight. So tonight we'll talk more about other science fiction realities that we have access to and maybe do another episode that's only dedicated to Blade Runner. We'll see how it goes. But the idea being that um, when science fiction really hits all of its marks, it is genuinely transportative. It really brings us somewhere. We talk about the movies as a vehicle for escapism all the time, right? We talk about wanting to go there to be transported, to be brought to some alternate place. Science fiction at its best actually can do that to us in our imaginations. So I know I speak for all of us when I say the second that you know I see the Lad Company tree come up on 2019, I'm immediately just I'm, I'm just stepping into the world of Los Angeles in this parallel 2019. 
And even when we were there for the event in, in real Los Angeles, in real 2019, walking around, I felt the after echoes of that film. I felt like that film was filmed here, even though it wasn't quite the same. So we thought this would be a good opportunity to explore some other films that do similar things to us, that make it feel like it's real, that make it feel like it's a fully lived in experience. And then also to talk about some of the ways Blade Runner does it so well and uh, and how filmmakers are able to do this in the first place. That's kind of what I'm thinking for tonight. I like it. But I also think we should start with what were our earliest ideas of the future? What did that consist of? What was informing that? I know for me, this is going to make people laugh, but it was the Jetsons as a kid. It's the future. You have flying cars. You have Rosie, the robot, taking care of the kids. They have the little machines that can make everything. That was the future. And it was fairly optimistic. It was bright. It was funny. It wasn't at all this dystopia that we're presented with within the last, you know, 20, 30 years, certainly even more than that with Blade Runner, which was the first on the scene. But the Jetsons for me was really seminal in terms of me falling in love with the future or a sci-fi future. Meet George Jetson. I would say, um, and I mean, I'm sure I've said this before, but my first kind of that I, my first like core memory that I can think of with futuristic movies are the original Star Wars trilogy. So it was droids and lightsabers and laser blasters and all of those things, the Millennium Falcon and, and space travel. And, um, Barring that, because I, I I can't remember a time in my life where I don't have Star Wars as a part of it, but barring that, it was those um, Looney Tunes cartoons, you know, every now and then they would go like into the future and it would be like 2002 or something. And there would be flying cars, like you said, Jamie, and robots everywhere and people like carrying um, their houses with them and their briefcases and stuff like that. So like you said, it was really bright or it was definitely an immersive world that was um very realistic and um i accepted as reality like with star wars even though it's it's a it's a sci-fi movie it's a fan it's like a sci-fi fantasy movie um from a kid even now when i watch the uh, many of the movies i i accept the reality like this is the what it is there um but it's it's funny because it's it, it, it'll be interesting to talk about the movies that are coming out now that present us with future versus the movies that were coming out a lot of the movies that were coming out and the shows that were coming out back then like you have like um oh my gosh what is the that movie danger will robinson oh uh, lost in space because even that is like kind of funny you know it's like sort of playing off of the star trek universe but yeah, it's it's definitely going to be interesting to talk about the dichotomy of darkness versus lightness and hope versus, um, you know, despair in the future. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. No, Will Robinson. Danger. Yeah, I think kind of piggybacking on that, I think Star Wars was a definite entry point um, for me. But as far as like a lived in um place where you felt every time you were either watching or or whatnot you were there and wanted to explore more for me it was um early introduction from i don't 
this had to have been, you know, late grade school, early middle school was into the, the Robotech anime stuff, like the, the, the series. And just for that, it was a lot of, I just, one, it was a piggyback on the love of, you know, Transformers and that being sort of a futuristic thing. Um, but mainly into, you know, having the cool vehicles, jets that turned into robots. But for that, it was the beginning of sort of the darker, you know, a lot of cities, a lot of destruction, a lot of just sort of despair. Um, yeah, so sort of my earliest memories, I think, are more in tune with sort of early anime, Robotech, Akira, stuff like that. Where I think you started to feel like it's a it's a it's a real world that you could find yourself inhabiting outside of the movie, even talking with your friends, you know, just things like that. Robotech is that what it was called? Pretty sure that that's correct. Yeah, was, that's right. Yeah, it was the jets, and they could turn yep. into. It was normally my cool. The coolest thing was when it was half jet with legs coming down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, uh, that transformer. There's a transformer that kind of looks yes, a little bit like. Yes, exactly. It, yeah. I've always yeah. yeah. My friend had that one. I was like, "This is a Robotech," and he's like, yeah, "No, it's a transformer." Totally, totally. Yeah, it, it was a very cool too. series. It was very you know future aliens coming down. You know, a lot like uh, essentially what like Pacific Rim would be if the Geigers were transformers. Essentially, that sounds fucking dope. I don't know why I've awesome. literally never yeah, heard of Robotech before. It's one of those things where because it's we're almost way older than you. Yeah. No, yeah. It's, 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 it's daunting how much content there is too. There's like seasons upon seasons upon seasons upon seasons. This is all before like, you know, the Transformers movie came out in, in the eighties with Orson Welles and stuff like that. Orson Welles was in a Transformers movie. Yeah. He was Omnicron. You're blowing my mind tonight, Peter, with stuff that I didn't know about. Yeah, you got to get the get the boys That's watching. Funny. I just watched original, that like a few weeks yeah. ago with Orson Welles. That's funny. Yeah, the original. That's shocking, Patrick. Shocking. He's, a, he's a voice of one of them. Yes, the Omicron. It's amazing. One hundred percent. to watch yeah. it right now. I'm going to put a record scratch sound effect in that. Like that is <laughs> that is absolutely <laughs> get him out of bed. That is crazy. Uh, I it, yeah, I have to say as a child. So I, you know, I was born in 85, so I'm a, I was really a child of the 90s, but I had a little bit of that 80s in there. And and I do remember there being a lot of great cartoons that felt very transportative when I was a kid. Uh, Transformers being one of them, He-Man, you know, Masters of the Universe, like all of those things. They were already kind of before my time a little bit, but I, I caught the, the end of that wave and I really loved it. But I have to say, this isn't necessarily uh, a vision of a realistic future or anything, but something that as a young kid, I really, you know, grabbed onto his power rangers because for me that was like a very cool early gateway science fiction thing which of course is ridiculous and you know out there but but as a kid well, i was, was very into power rangers yeah power rangers into was fucking it. great our yep. power rangers was voltron volt there would not be power rangers if there weren't if there wasn't Voltron and Voltron yes. okay. had a similar idea you had all these people dressed in similar costumes they'd all get yeah they'd all get like uh, turned They'd all get like zapped into certain places and then they would jump into their robots, which were cats, as you know, and then the cats would form the the big, huge robot, which was, again, before Terminator. That was informing me, too. Like, But it was interesting if, as a child, I think about futuristic shows or films 
most of it had to do with tech and less to do with an emotional climate or a, a socioeconomic climate informing that as well. Most of it was cool gadgets and futuristic things as opposed to we've destroyed the earth. Um, one of those 1950s film, I think, yeah, 50s, The Day the Earth Stood Still, the original which, you know, he comes out of the ship saying, you're going to destroy yourself if you don't stop. If you don't stop and take account. And when, you know, all the electronics and everything in the, on the whole planet, the cars, everything was at a standstill. And the guy who got out of the spaceship with his big robot was there to warn humanity. And that's the only thing that I can remember as a child thinking, oh shit, something's up. I am leaving soon. And you will forgive me if I speak bluntly. The universe grows smaller every day. And the threat of aggression by any group, anywhere, can no longer be tolerated. There must be security for all, or no one is secure. Now, this does not mean giving up any freedom, except the freedom to act irresponsibly. Your ancestors knew this when they made laws to govern themselves and hired policemen to enforce them. We of the other planets have long accepted this principle. Wait, wait, wait. So in Voltron, they're cats? And the cats combine to make a robot? They're robot cats. Yeah, they're, they're robot large, cats. They're okay. lions. They're lions. They're yeah, but the Power lions. Rangers are freaking dinosaurs, all right? They are. And the Power Dinosaur. Rangers also was rife. Hang on, Jamie. I have, to, I have a bone to pick with you. The Power Rangers was also full of social commentary, very layered narrative, very... T- I'm just. I never watched the Power Rangers. It was too. I was a little bit too old by the time they were a big deal. And again, there was a better iteration of them, which wasn't as cheesy, which was Voltron, and it was anime uh, drawn by Japanese artists in Japan for American studios. Um, So by the again, by the time uh, Power Rangers came around, it was it was just this watered down iteration of something that was great at one point. Mm. Well, Voltron came back on Netflix. I know that. It did. There's a couple different iterations of Voltron within the last 20 years, for sure. Yeah, interesting. I'll have, to, I'll have to check them out with the kids who we will have to go wake up. Um, I, To me, I, I know this might come as a huge shock to people. The first, other than Star Wars, obviously, the first truly immersive science fiction that I ever really fell deeply into was Alien. Uh, there's no many reasons for that, which you know we don't need to even get into because we have a whole show three dedicated years old. to it. Not not too far from that, honestly, Um, but more so than Aliens. And I saw them both around the same time when I was seven, turning eight. Alien for me remains to this day. The only thing that actually brings me to that same place that Blade Runner does, which is the attention to detail, the attention to world building, the attention to nuance. There are so many things happening in Alien that make it feel real and lived in. And it's not just the cassette futurist aesthetic. It's not just the costuming. It's not just, you know, the amazing use of symbolism, like literal symbolism on the walls of the Nostromo and all these different things. What it is more than that is the subtlety of the sound design. It's how all of these other things are are informing the narrative and the ways the characters interact, but the characters aren't really talking about it because they're living in it. And so that I think gets me to something that I want to bring up 
about when these things feel really immersive to me is the characters have no need to be calling out how immersive it is, right? The characters don't need to be calling attention to the tenets of the society that they're living in. The characters don't have to walk around with, you know, an Aaron Sorkin camera in front of them talking about all of these things that govern the way that they live because the characters would have been bored talking about that a long time ago if that was the only thing that they talked about, right? So when we see Alien, we see a crew that is already so firmly immersed in the world that they inhabit that they don't need to be discussing it the entire time. They're talking about actual concerns that people in that world would have, like, why the fuck am I not getting paid as much? Or like, you know, what's this, what's the seniority you know, rank in this particular decision-making tree? Like, why do we have to wake up? Why can't we go back to bed? We have to get home. Very, very mundane, banal things. But those mundane, what's interesting is that in really immersive science fiction, those mundane, banal things are often the things that actually make it real. Blade Runner, of course, is full of things like that, right? It's full of people in the background just living their life and doing their job and getting from point A to point B, bumping into each other. It's full of detritus in the street. It's full of just random sounds of things going by in the background. You know, something, and not to bring up Black Lotus again, which we're going to make it one episode without complaining about Black Lotus soon. I swear to God, not complaining, being passionately critical. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, But, you know, one of my main complaints, passionate critiques of Black Lotus was the lack of subtlety and layering in both the visual design and in the sound design. These aren't aesthetic choices. And I think that's something that's important to realize. These aren't just ways of making it look or sound quote unquote good or making it look and sound quote unquote science fiction. They're ways of telling the audience that there's way more happening here than you will ever be able to pay attention to because the world is like that. The world is a place that if you were to be able to take it all in, you would be catatonic. You couldn't, you know, go anywhere. So the the type of layering of substance and detail in both Alien and Blade Runner is to my mind essentially unparalleled in science fiction. And it's, of course, a testament to Ridley Scott, who did these films within three years of each other early in his career. And the type of, uh, the, the, the sort of time-staking, painstaking work that he really did, along with, of course, his production team with people like Lawrence Kasdan, et cetera. Anyway, that's that's all to say that uh, Alien to me was, was my early first real gateway into what immersive science fiction could be. I would argue that um Villeneuve's Dune is getting there um with the immersion in the world and and the building um of all these things like you were saying that um the characters aren't going to talk about well we have to wear this type of spacesuit now because there's no oxygen for us to breathe it's just like you know what the audience is smart enough to get that we aren't gonna take everything in like you said like um, just with the technology and how like the um, thopters work and stuff like that, how each each um, society has their own way of dressing according to their own home worlds and they have their own um, s- statuses and symbols and and every world that they that we get to see at least in part one of dune has those things established for us. Um, so I would I would argue that Dune is well, the new Dune movies are going to probably, I mean, I'll just say the one that's out. The one that is out is is well on its way to establishing that, for me at least, a world that feels like, oh my God, this is what is happening to human beings thousands of years into the future. It like makes sense, you know? I think that's part of it too. Like something about the worlds that we're talking about right now just clicks for you 
And it doesn't matter if you really are truly comprehending everything that you're seeing, but it's it's almost as if the characters know what they're doing and how to move through their worlds without, <laughs> you know, spoon feeding the audience about it. And that's part of that element of realism that we get. And that's part of the immersion. Like I, I'm going back to Blade Runner, when we see in 2049, when Kay gets home to his apartment, like just how every day humdrum it is that he has to go up the stairs. And it's still a high tech door, but it's a door with graffiti on it. Um, he still has all these like technically things that are above our current um stereotypical households tech level but he just casually uses them like joy herself all all of those things and the way that he uses them isn't um to demonstrate to the audience you know like that is what helps with the realism i think i think the the shared thing that we're sort of building on here so far has been the mundane and just sort of the reality of of the world um again building on all those things i think mike i love the fact that you mentioned the new dunes because one of my favorite thing about that was simply one of course the tech which then goes back to jamie and my sort of shared memory of childhood which was the future is cool because you have cool stuff but then also the fact that you like you're saying it's used in a very mundane or practical way and not in a, Hey, here's the shiny cool thing from the future. Aren't we clever for having put this in a movie and thinking about how this could be used in the future? No, it's just, it's seamlessly brought into the world and used for a general and sometimes mundane purpose, like just simply keeping you warm or protected for a night in the desert, essentially. Um, and just when Patrick was talking, I think a lot of what I think of in both Alien, which again is another one where you can't, it's one of those, one of my best gauges for how immersive a movie is and brings you into the world for me is how often I can actually watch it. Despite them being my favorite movies, a lot of times 2049, you know, Blade Runner or Alien versus Aliens and I've talked about this before, are much more difficult for me to start in just a random night because the second I do it, I, I can't stop it. And I have to feel it and get into it. And I want to think about it for hours after. And it's if I have to go to bed and get up early or just do whatever, it's just like, man, I don't really want to enter the world just to have to get pulled out. Um, but my original point was just all the mentioning of the mundane. I think that's a very good theme because, you know, some of the best parts most realistic parts of Blade Runner are, you know, the classic, the noodle scene at the beginning. And the reason it's classic is he's having trouble um, both communicating in some ways, getting your order placed, getting the food, trying to eat it. It's uncomfortable. It's raining. And it's not in a, oh, hey, I'm getting wet. Look how cool it looks to get wet in this movie. It's I'm getting wet. It's very annoying. You're shaking off a newspaper. There's drips and it's annoying. Um I'm saying with Alien, you know, they're, they're eating together in the mess hall and it's, uh, and it's not, you know, hey, look how cool and futuristic the food is. It's, hey, this cornbread is crappy and, you know, it's grainy or, or whatnot. And so I think it's the, the mundane that somehow triggers us to believe then the far-fetched futurism of these movies. Um, I'll quickly mention just so I've 
contributed a little. I mean, for me, and it's 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 directly because of Alien, but a more recent movie is, and I think I've mentioned this before, but is Moon with Sam Rockwell. And again, it's not as expansive or, or as well of these movies as an entire world, but it's a very mundane shot of someone foraging or mining on the moon. And again, it's it's the mundane shot, just the mundane and just sort of boring existence of being there by yourself. And it's those mundane things. And I think the one thing I'll mention and then I'll pass it is, again, I think it's, so now I'm, t- you know, the themes I've seen are eating, how mundane the movie is and some scarcity of resource that makes it a real future. I mean, we all know that it's very highly unlikely that in the future we're all rich and we have this unlimited resources. It's a future where we are, there's a scarcity of something. And so oftentimes for me, when you pull that into the story, that's what's going to hook me to is, is what scarcity is it water? Is it in children of men, scarcity of women? Is it scarcity of people in the road? Um, it's, it's something like that, that really kind of pulls me in. So I was wondering, you know, what are some other themes that sort of, if it's, if, if it's a topic, it's going to grab you for you guys. Can I mention one thing before we move on about the um, mundane that you brought up that triggered something in my head? Um, one of my favorite lines in Star Wars that contributes to the reality of the universe is you first see the Millennium Falcon and what does Luke Skywalker say? What a piece, what a of, piece junk, of junk, right? And like for me as a kid, I'm looking at the spaceship thinking it is the coolest thing I have literally ever seen in my life. And this character is calling it a piece of junk because in his world, it looks like garbage and it doesn't work. Like Consolo is always punching it, like stuff like that. Just instead of it being like this shiny, beautiful spaceship that we can't comprehend how high tech it is. It's like this piece of crap that doesn't work. And Leia says, would it help if I get out and pushed like it, that all of that, like that's real for them. And therefore it is real to us. So sorry, I know, but I just really wanted to mention that really quick. I think that's great. Like I, I feel like there's definitely in terms of futurism, there's different kinds. There is immersive futurism. There's escapist futurism things like Star Trek, which are highly idealized, not very realistic. Um, Nothing about Star Trek is realistic. It's idealized in terms of a society, uh, a world society come together. There's no more war. There's not even really any more money. Everyone's there to do, to further humanity and do a good job. And that's obviously ridiculous. That's never going to happen. And I watched early Star Trek, you know, with William Shatner and, the new versions, and I enjoyed a lot of it. I thought it was great, but it was never immersive. It was never realistic. Certainly, they hit on some human themes sometimes, and they explored some really deep, meaningful storylines, absolutely, about the human condition. But in large part, it was kind of, eh, Star Trek. And conversely, Star Wars, for me, played out a lot like Lord of the Rings, where it was more fantasy. I couldn't imagine that future because it was a long time ago in a galaxy far far away so it was futuristic but you know what i mean but it was immersive because that world is immersive but it wasn't like realistic but it was to your point micah really realistic it was dusty it was dirty it was um just even the language the dialogue in the first you know the first the original trilogy these felt like real people um having real issues and real 
adventures uh, in a world we could never even possibly imagine. Um, but then you get to films like 2001 A Space Odyssey, which are wholly immersive and really highbrow, really changed the game. I mean, we had 2001 before we had the Star Wars trilogy. It really set the bar for the Star Wars trilogy. It set the bar for Alien. Those movies would not have happened without 2001. And even still, when I watch it today, it's one of those things that pulls you in and feels like a plausible future in a way that I almost can't describe, not even just in a, in a way, but in a tech way, because certainly there are ships and they're going to the Jupiter or wherever they go to, um, to explore all of these things. But nothing is when you see him taking the big, the ride up there in the ship. And then, you know, you see there's a, a flight attendant and all, everything they're showing you is very interesting, but they're also not explaining it to us. They're just show this is life. This is how you go. A, a trip to the moon is no big deal. A trip here is no big deal. We have flight attendants just like we have flight attendants now. Although they were, I think, largely women in 2001, which I think is funny. Because um, that wouldn't change, of course. Um, <laughs> the greatest for me, like, I, I even think about the Matrix, the first Matrix film, and how amazing that was. And it was a bit of a future, but it also wasn't. It was, it was very philosophical but there's a lot of things happening. We're being immersed in a, a computer system. Um, so our real, the actual future reality, yeah, there's the train again, sorry. Every day, every day at the same time. Our reality in the matrix was actually very bleak and very grim and very uh, kind of like, this is it. This is what we have. So people live in the matrix. A lot of people preferred it as opposed to life outside of it. But then, and this gets back to a discussion that I had with you, Patrick. I just recently watched The Matrix Resurrections, and I, I thought that was entertaining, but a lot of that movie, they are just explaining what we're seeing over and over. This is that sky. This is how that works. This strawberry was grown here. This is how we grew that strawberry. This is why. Oh, and this person over here, they're not really real, but they are sentient. And explaining over and over and over everything we're seeing. And to me, when I, that started happening, the immersion just fell away. I was like, you know what? The best science fiction never explains itself. The best future I've ever been in, certainly as it relates to Blade Runner, doesn't ever explain itself. It just is. And it's created so... Uh, there are so many layers to that experience that that's the immersion that we need. We don't need any more explanation from that. Um, so definitely for me, I can, when it comes to sci-fi, I compartmentalize how I view it as opposed to, am I Swiss family or Swiss family Robinson? Um, uh, what is it? What's the show? Lost in based, space. Yeah. Which is based off Swiss family. It, it is Swiss family Robinson um, in space though. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when I watch that show, I go in with different expectations. I go in to be delighted and go on a little bit of adventure. It's similar to Star Trek, Micah, to your point. But if I watch, I don't know, I mean, obviously Blade Runner or Alien or uh, Ex Machina or Devs, I expect it's a completely different world. It's a completely different experience that's going to engage me emotionally and philosophically. I have I have like nine points based on things that you've all brought up, and I'm I'm not going to get to all of them, which is probably good because I'll talk for too long. But I, just going back for a moment to the Star Wars films, 
I think that it is so easy to take for granted how novel George Lucas's treatment of science fiction was, especially because we pick it apart so much because we see, oh, he took this from Dune or he took this from Buck Rogers or he took this from X and Y. And even he says that too, right? That he was copying all these things that he liked and throwing them together into this pulp, you know, pot. Um, but it, it's, I think we have to remember that when you watch Buck Rogers or when you watch, you know, or when you read Dune, there the technology in both of those things much less so in dune at least is is much more fetishized than it is in star wars in star wars it's not treated preciously in star wars all of the technology in it especially in in episode four right is like falling apart it's in very varying states of decrepitude states of decrepitude it is lived in it's broken right the farm isn't even that functional we've got shit breaking like the we're introduced to power droids by them being broken like you know we see all of these wonderful lived in elements that the characters are just coexisting with and you juxtapose that with two things first off is the jetsons jamie which i'm glad you brought up i i love the jetsons i used to watch reruns as a kid all the time love Hanna barbera not digging on on that whatsoever but the way technology is treated in the Jetsons is so different, right? Because it is all about the novelty and the wonder of the future in this post-World War II America version of what the future looks like, where the, the comedy arises from things being so high-tech that like people are befuddled by it, right? That as you're getting dressed by your robots in the morning, you know, it starts brushing your teeth, you know, using a toothbrush in your hair or something like that, right? Whereas in Star Wars, the technology is like they have to continuously be just adapting to the fact that it's never in a state of working well. And so I think a big part of why the prequels really ring so hollow for so many people, and I definitely count myself among those people, is because the way the technology is treated in the prequels is so vastly different, right? Like, look at the world of episodes four, five, and six, and then look at the world of one, two, three. You know, we're introduced to even just look at Queen Amidala, right? Look at the N1 Starfighter that she flies in, look at the Royal Starship, and compare that or the Royal. Uh, uh, what's the other one? She, uh, uh, I don't know. She has another one. I can't remember what it's called. But the way that those ships look and operate versus the Falcon or versus the Corvettes in the first film or versus, you know, uh, the X-Wing, right? I mean, when you see the X-Wings flying around, they're, they're breaking apart. They're rattling. Things are moving, you know, awkwardly. They're not perfect. Um, and that perfection is really a, an issue with contemporary CG digital realized worlds because you can achieve it finally. And all of that model work that made those early movies like 2001 being the primordial example of that so incredibly great to watch. It all gets flushed on the toilet because you can just do it very simply and it will come out perfectly. So what's interesting is that it's not only a problem of here's the word verisimilitude. It's also a problem of they end up showing too much. And in showing too much, we just stop imagining it, right? We just stop putting ourselves into it. And we just kind of watch all these things happen. And we're like, oh, wow, look at all this exposition. How the future looks so interesting. This is great. As opposed to 2001, A Space Odyssey, where we have no explanation for anything for most of the movie. We are just living this experience. And, and as we're living it, we're piecing it together. We're like, oh, that's why it spins slow. Oh, it's approximating a gravity field. Oh, I get it. Oh, that's, oh, shit. The, sh the ship is run by this computer. What, what, what happens if the computer doesn't do well? Right. When we start putting these pieces together for ourselves so that by the end of the movie, it's our movie. It's us. Right. We are there in the ship with him. 
And that is something that a lot of these these you know more contemporary films lose out on, I think, which is really problematic. Going back to Peter's point about um, scarcity, that is something that I, I brings very true for me as well. And I, I think a great example of that in terms of an immersive sci-fi reality is Wall-E from I think 2008, the Disney Pixar film, which is, is one of my favorite movies of all time. And to me, feels so lived in and so real, even though it has all these layers of removal, because not only is it a futuristic sci-fi movie, it's a post-apocalyptic sci-fi movie, and it's an animated sci-fi movie from a studio that is known for things like Toy Story, right? So it's so far removed from things that should feel quote-unquote realistic, and yet it feels realistic because of the emotional themes driving the core of it. And because all of the technology in it, it again, we are introduced to decrepit machines. I mean, Wally is literally a garbage pickup robot on a, on a, you know, completely desiccated planet and uh, technology. And then we see like the futuristic technology and, and Eve, you know, when she comes and she is threatening to him and he's frightened of her. He's not sitting there in this, you know, in wonderment at what the future beholds. He's like, oh shit, the future is kind of scary for me, right? It represents change and it represents all these things about myself and about, anyway, Wally, I think is a really good example of a movie that gets it right. And the scarcity of resources in it rings really true because the thing is, is that a lot of lesser science fiction, I think, treats the world as full of possibility. I say that as a fundamental optimist myself. I, I still think the world is full of possibility, but but the optimists don't make the best science fiction unless you're Isaac Asimov, right? Realists do because they think about what would the world actually look like and function as, and how can we make a world that functions to fit that reality that people will recognize? And then how do we let them step into it and figure out why? Right. So a lot of the decisions in a film like so Dune, Micah, I'm glad you brought up from the 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 Denny Villeneuve and, and, and Denny Villeneuve in general is a filmmaker who gets this basically in everything. Arrival is another fantastic example of this. Obviously, 2049 is just a beautiful example of this. And his treatment of Dune is a, is a great example of this. We from the very beginning of the movie are having to play catch-up somewhat as an audience, right? I think about the initial landing sequence. Um, you know, when we have, you know, but Duke Leto Atreides is, uh, is greeted by the um, emperor's signal bearers and then come down from the ship. And we see all of these colors, like Micah was saying, right? All of the, all of the, the uh, livery of the houses. We see the spice encased helmets of the guild. You know, we see all of these things that we're trying to put together and, and we see the, you know, the Reverend Mother coming. We see all of these things that we're just trying to, to piece together and there's no explanation for it. There's nobody going, hey, look, oh, look over there. Oh, that's, you know, blah, blah. And that I think is again, getting to what we're saying, which is immersive science fiction is by virtue of immersing us, immersive, right? We It's, it's something that we get put into and we have to swim around in and figure out. And I think that there's just some good movies that have been brought up so far to that end. I think part of it um, that we're kind of dancing around a little bit is like you were saying with the, with the prequels for star Wars, it takes you out of it when you see that perfect sleek silver ship that queen Amidala rides around in because we, no matter what we do, as human beings, I think most of us know that that's not real, that we'll set up alarm bells going like, nope, not real. Nothing is that smooth or perfect unless it's like, I, I mean, it's just something about that just takes you right out of it. It's too clean. We're not a clean species. And if this is a movie about human beings, we're not going to be clean or perfect. So a lot of the time in futuristic movies, if we see something like that, that's perfectly CG or 
like all of the aliens look exactly like us or like, that's not how they would, it just feels wrong. And then I really wanted to talk more about what you said, Peter, with the scarcity. Um, And this, I feel like we are talking about all these different themes that come up in sci-fi worlds that we, we tend to be interested in. And um, the scarcity or the conflict of the future worlds is what makes it like, oh my God, is that where we're going? Or like, whoa, I'm glad we don't live in that timeline. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like when you talk about something like children of men, where women just can't get pregnant anymore for no reason, um, that is a sci-fi future for us that is very tangible. Like that could happen. Um, or even it, like, I, it's not really a sci-fi, but walking dead, the scarcity of resources and the conflict of actual viral infected zombies that will kill you and you all turn into zombies or like something that goes to the other extreme, like Mad Max where, okay, this is a hundred thousand percent post-apocalyptic. And this is how like the tribes of humanity start to survive. It's just when you get a good, um, a good theme for these these shows that we are tending to love it just brings you right in but i love i love so much um the range of these shows like we can talk about star wars and we could talk about children of men we could talk about shows like handmaid's tale which i wouldn't say truly is a sci-fi but it's a it's a futuristic society that um is not part of our timeline thankfully right now but it could be you know, and it's just these these worlds that that don't spoon feed us um, and and deal with real issues. Like what is it going to look like when when we have to fight each other for food or when we can't make our own babies anymore? Like, what does that look like? And that is what keeps our wheels turning while we're watching these movies. It's not like here, look, uh, I can zap my dinner onto the table for everyone. Like, that's a joke. But the reality is, like, what do we eat when? water is something that is as precious as gold, you know, or what do we do for shelter when we live on a planet that is ravaged by climate change and is no longer habitable like in Wally. So I just really love this conversation because we can talk about so many different movies and they will all show the same thing. The differences these days in future futurism and seeing the future in films as Again, we have these dueling things from the past where one might be man's ingenuity. That's what we see. We see tech. We see amazing things. On the reverse, the like The Handmaid's Tale, what, a future that is very plausible and isn't, is more than plausible. It's happened with us in the past couple of years. It's kind of pulled back, but we had moments of it where we were directly responsible for the lack we were directly responsible for the catastrophe um, that we were enduring or had to endure. And that's a, a, a Children of Men is very similar. Uh, I mean, every time I talk, <laughs> the train, the train has something to say. But for me, what's most gripping these days is where we're taking ourselves, how we're creating the future, how our our incompetence as a, as a, as a species is ruining not just the planet, it's ruining our, our our economic conditions, it's ruining everything. And it's slowly, and we're seeing it more, especially with the onset of COVID and things being more 
visible than they have been before. We, we're seeing these little mini collapses everywhere, whether it's supply chain, whether it's, you know, everywhere. And we're seeing them in ways we haven't seen before, um, where our, our own ineptitude is contributing directly to a future where we lack, where we have lack, where everything we're experiencing is from our hands. And that, to me, is actually, it's a more realistic future, but it's one that I'm more interested in experiencing or looking at because we're going to have to face it. I mean, notoriously and famously, Ridley Scott, back when Blade Runner was coming out, he was talking about science fiction and the idea of the world that he was building like this could be. This is where we're seeing it going. This could be a warning. I mean, Philip K. Dick said this himself. He said, you know, this is really, this is supposed to be a warning. It isn't supposed to be this like, Oh, I hope we look like this one day. It's a warning. And that warning, I feel like, has passed. So now we're in the danger zone. And that's a lot of the films that I'm seeing happen today. Or, or a lot of films I'm seeing being released today are about that warning. I think about the movie Her, which is also a, you know a futuristic film, but it's very realistic. It's very immersive. But it's also dystopian without some of the the devices of a dystopia everyone's walking around everyone's you know seemingly normal or whatever but her really shows us this world shows us a world much like wally of disconnection where everyone's on their tablet everyone's on their phone everyone's having conversations with people who are not around them and what that world creates and when her came out it was really before the onset of that really being a reality and it was you watch it and you're like, holy shit, like people are like distracted by everything else except for what's going on around them. And now that's the world we live in. And that's interesting to me. That's the most interesting, more than any tech, more than any, any spaceship or anything. We all remember that moment. The first time we heard a theme from our favorite movie, how it stayed with us, comforted us stirring our imagination. Sublime Noise is our Patreon-exclusive film score review show. Starting at just $4 a month, you will gain access to Sublime Noise as well as our warehouse of frame rate episodes where we discuss and review our favorite films. To sign up, go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. In a lot of our, your guys' conversations um, that I've listened to one of you, and I think it's Patrick normally makes some reference. It could be almost like a soundbite. You've said it several times, but it's good um, about how essentially science fiction allows, you know, a, it's a window, a conduit, whatever Patrick language you want to use of yeah. real issues. And I can't think of, I wish I could just play that soundbite. Cause that's kind of what a mirror? My, my point. Yeah. Or, or something, you know, like science fiction is always the best conduit for actual f- things that matter or storytelling, or just, you know, these, like Michael was saying about just having these types of conversations, you can't have these in other genres because they don't shine the light so well on certain issues about the human condition. I don't re- remember what well, it is. I, but... The stakes I... are not as high, you know, yeah. the stakes are not as high in regular movies. Yeah, the stakes and- are higher, so we can we can explore these big emotions and these big human problems 
in these movies. And that's why I think people like us tend to gravitate toward them. Yeah. And science fiction, I've always said science fiction, good science fiction, great science fiction. Yes, great. This is it. This is it. Yes. It doesn't answer them. Um, And the sci-fi that doesn't work answers them. That's why Star Trek's always a little bit, nah. I mean, I have fun, but it's like these answers to these questions. It's always an answer. It's always an answer. It's always a moral, too. Yeah, certainty. And I don't think the moral isn't the issue for me with Star Trek. It's just the certainty of it. It's this, it's the, when Star Trek isn't working, it's because it's, oh my God, I've had a hard time remembering this. It's too clean. It's too too wrapped up. What do you call it when you, you deliberately tell how, it virtue signals. That's when Star Trek doesn't work for me is when it virtue signals. And it's doing a lot of that these days. Uh, This just in, ladies and gentlemen, hot off of a uh, faux pas, which was on me for daylight savings time, throwing off a time zone issue. We have Dr. Robin Bunce joining uh, at 2 a.m., which uh, is just incredible, as always, from the UK. Dr. Robin Bunce, thank you for making this time. And I'm sorry that I gave you uh, a weird time to join at. Hey, no worries. It's good to be here. On for the record, there is no daylight in the UK right now, and I don't save. Interest rates are rubbish, so daylight savings means nothing to me. But I'm really <laughs> pleased to be here. Anyway, carry on. So, Peter, you were you were going to say something? Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just going to jump in with with three three points. One quick point um, regarding Micah's discussion regarding and Patrick regarding the prequels and all that and and sort of Jamie's mention of of you know more contemporary science fiction I think falling into a lot of the trappings of the prequels being that new and shiny isn't as immersive as used rundown and day to day and I think we some hope to that I think is in um again in the Star Wars universe is you know in in the book of Boba Fett and what became then Mandalorian season two point, you know, season 2.5 um, using one of those Naboo starfighters, showing it broken down, showing it built back up and turning it into essentially like a, a refurbished, um, you know, classic car in a sense. I think Fav, um, Favreau showed much like he did, I think with the first Iron Man and sort of showing the original iterations of sort of more tanky and then becoming more tech that you don't have to do it with new CGI. New CGI doesn't have to show the brand new designs. It can make, a, you know, one of the new booth starfighters look like crap and be built back up. So I really loved that. And that goes a lot to, you know, Micah's points of how I think Star Wars can once again, be that immersive universe and lived in universe. But so to the other two points, one is a overview and one is a more specific and one goes to the scarcity. And with the, with the day, the daylight savings time fiasco of this episode, I think one of my favorite personal um, hooks to any science fiction is, is the scarcity of time. And, you know, Patrick and I have had, uh, great discussions about that over the years. And, you know, even there was a, you know, a Patreon episode where we're blubbering idiots um, talking about um, the movie about time and the scarcity that was a, of time. That was a great movie. Oh my God. So, you know, for me, a lot of it is the scarcity of time and, and, and the future being the fact that there'll be so much less time, at least for those of us in the present. Um, and so, you know, I just wanted to mention, you know, a lot of themes in that, 
Um, Blade Runner, of course, has a lot of scarcity of time issues, especially in the original, you know, the amount of time you have left. And we've talked in, in great detail. But I think for me, that's one of my favorite thoroughfares through any science fiction is, is how scarce um, time is and, and how we somehow find ways to try to fix that, which we can't. It's the one, I think, resource that we'll never be able to bioengineer, fix anything. So that's that's a, a good talking point. I'd love anyone to, to pick up on that in a second. Um, but then, so the overarching point and to help, you know, sort of Dr. Bums come into this too is, you know, I, I saw a lot of what the challenge of is this episode is, is there anything as immersive of as the world um, of, of the original Blade Runner um, and 2049, and that being the entire wo- world building of an entire city and somehow in that city at least in the original Blade Runner then you know transforming or even being large enough to envision an entire world I mean all we really see in Blade Runner um, the original uh, 2019 is LA but yet we've all had visions of off world because of that movie we've all had visions of what outside LA would be and they've never shown any of that and so I think the ultimate challenge of this episode is for me trying to figure out anything that's beyond that. And to be honest, I can't find any other movie. Um, again, like Patrick said, Alien is one of the closest, um, but Alien has the benefit of keeping itself contained to a ship. Um, another great movie, Annihilation has the benefit of keeping itself to the, I forget what it's called, but essentially the bubble. The shimmer. The shimmer. It contains itself in that. Um, Arrival, again, scarcity of time. You know, I'll be blubbering again if we get into that too far. But again, it has the benefit of that one encounter and that one relationship, you know, any with Amy Adams and you know again and so you know and one of my favorites like I said again Moon has the benefit of maintaining it to a space station 20 2001 again the benefit of maintaining and closing it and I think a lot of science fiction is very smart in doing that because you get too broad and you blow it the whole thing goes to crap and so I don't I'm going to propose um no one has ever built the world like Blade Runner. And I don't think you can get to that point to have a contained unit like LA, which feels more real than any other future city we've ever seen. And yet also gave us an entire world that we never saw that also felt just as we, you know, real. And the closest thing I've seen get to it is then in the comics of Blade Runner, where we've gone off world a little bit. We've seen outside of LA, 2049 brings us to Vegas. Um, but I think outside of Blade Runner, no one can do it. So that's sort of the overarching theme. And I'd like to challenge Dr. Bunce. Um, what's the what's the closest thing that you think has, has, has gotten to Blade Runner? And uh, am I putting it on too far of a, too high of a pedestal? I don't think so. I think there is something extraordinary about Blade Runner. And I I think you've put your finger on it in the sense that it is immersive, like 
no other film um, because of the kind of because of the world building that Ridley Scott does um, because of the cinematography and of course crucially because of the music but I, I've talked about the music before so I will not go down that rabbit hole tonight um, I guess perhaps where I experience emotiveness in a slightly different way is with Arrival it wasn't so much that the world that was built was um, was as all encompassing as as the Blade Runner world. It's that that I was emotionally invested in the plot and the situation, and therefore I was kind of drawn in and pulled in and held by the um, by the conviction of the performances and and what was at stake in terms of the action um, and in terms of the narrative and the plot and all of those kind of things. I, th I think the music also really helped me to be engaged and sucked in and drawn in. Um, I mean. I guess in terms of visions of the future and the kinds of visions of the future that I return to and want to inhabit over and over again. Um, I'm going to go all kinds of 60s on you right now and say um, Fahrenheit 451 by Francois Truffaut. Um, there's something about that, which um, I, I, the first time I saw it was in the 90s, I came in halfway through the film and I was just completely drawn into it. And this was back in the day, no, the 80s, the 80s, I came to the 80s, I was halfway through the film. This was back in the day that, you know, if you hadn't set up your video recorder, um, you know, then you missed it. Okay, so I missed it. And I had to wait another five or six years before I could see it. But there was something about it, which gave me this desire to go out and see it and want to inhabit those spaces. Um, it's all shot, I, I said, the exterior is all shot in a place called Alton East this big old council estate in London on the border of Richmond Park. And one of the things I do occasionally is I drag my family out there and we go and spend time in this incredible brutalist environment. Um, so yeah, so it wanted, I wanted to be in the film so much that I actually sought out the sets, no, not sets, the locations and, you know, inhabited them. And again, I think it's about Francois Truffaut. Um, I think it's about, um, it's about the way it's shot and the light and the, the conviction of the characters and the importance of the narrative and of course Bernard Herrmann's music so I think it's all of those things I think Blade Runner does it you know superlatively but I think you know as I say Fahrenheit 451 does it for me and um, back in the 60s again I think um, Planet of the Apes does it for me I think 2001 completely does it for me and yeah and weirdly the thing about 2001 Peter obviously is it is a bright and shiny future and it is immersive um, the Death Star as well. I'm hopping out all around the place. The Death Star is not bright, but it is shiny and it is completely immersive. I mean, I would who wouldn't want to spend a day on a Star Destroyer? I mean, you know, that, that environment is just so, so well conceived and so attractive in so many ways. Um, full disclosure, love brutalism. There's a, there's a car park in central London, which looks like an interior of a Star Destroyer. It was recently, it was recently demolished, but before it was demolished, I would go there occasionally. Um, I'll send you pictures. It's an incredible, it's an incredible space. So I guess it's about, it's partly about the design, something about um, the design of the Star Destroyer, the design of Discovery One, the design of Fahrenheit 451, the design of Blade Runner, that pulls me in. And also something about the, um, the music and something about the narrative those are the things which suck me in um so yeah but that that's my feeling to bring up something that just came out and no spoilers of course for those who haven't seen it is the batman so for me i i grew up with batman the animated series and then as i grew into a teenager i became kind of obsessed with the comic books I love me the Tim Burton era and the Batman with nipples on the suit era, of course. Love it. Love the Christian Bale stuff. Heath Ledger is the is 
phenomenal and I don't think we'll ever see a performance like that again as the Joker. But this new movie, I have to say, as far as immersive worlds go, this really found Gotham for me, um, more so than I've ever seen in any film, any animation version of Batman. It, it really built what Gotham feels like, sounds like, smells like, looks like, all of those things. Not to say that I would want to live there for much of a time, but without spoiling too much for those who haven't seen the Batman yet with Robert Pattinson, the Matt Reeves version, I believe as someone who has lived with Batman in my life for a really long time, that this Gotham City is Gotham City for real. So that's my little bit about Batman. So I wanna, what's tough with this episode is that everybody's bringing up so many diverse, interesting points that I keep wanting to address all of them. And then I get confused about what I'm talking about. Before I get to the Batman again, I'm bookmarking that in my head right now. Um, going back to Robin's points, actually, no, going back to Peter's points before him about about time and about how um, a lot of the immersion in these films can come from an emotional pull because we recognize in those characters an emotion we recognize within ourselves or that we're driven for the same reasons these characters are driven. I immediately, of course, thought of Interstellar because that is all about time and all about parenthood and all about you know the circularity of life and about where we come from and these gigantic themes that percolate through a lot of the great works of science fiction. And I think there's something, something that is nice about that is that we become aware that even in fantastical environments or even in different places in different times, the concerns of the people there are similar to the concerns that we have. We can kind of see ourselves in those places. And in doing so, we imagine what it would be like to feel the way that we feel now, but transplanted to a fantastical elsewhere. So I think Interstellar is a really good example of that. Um, I also think, and I now I can't remember who brought this point up, so I'll, I'll give credit to Dr. Bunce, but it might've been Peter too. Um, so talking about scarcity, not of, of resources, but in terms of sets. Oh yeah, Peter, this is actually Peter. Sorry. Sorry, Robin. Um, you know, you're talking about how for, for most of Blade Runner, we're really only seeing actually for all of Blade Runner, we're just seeing one city. And for most of that time, we're seeing maybe about eight streets, right? Even in 2049, we have very brief sojourns out of downtown Los Angeles. You know, we get to Nevada, we get to the Sepulveda wall, we see some of the bordering towns, but we really basically are just in greater LA. Um, and I think that that is getting at what we were talking about a little bit with the Star Wars sequels versus the original films in that that scarcity creates a couple of really important things. One is an attention to detail and an ability to really labor over the small details that make something feel real because you have, you know, you, if you're, if you have everything available to you in the entire universe to create, you know, it, you're not going to be able to put the time into creating it believably, but what you have in a movie, like I, so another movie that came to mind was at Astra, which I really, really love. And, and that's a movie that I've, I've sort of forgotten about because it's you know been a few years now, but I think it's a really fantastic film. Most of that takes place on one set. Most of it's just on his ship, right? And the fact that most of it is on that ship means that we have a lot of time in his headspace and a lot of time to imagine what it would be like to actually just moment to moment be living in that environment and what the passage of time would do to somebody, what that incredible stretch would, would be like. And then, of course, we have themes. I won't spoil the end of the movie, but themes of time and fatherhood and circularity of life and things that we see in a movie like Interstellar and in other of these films that we're talking about. So Ed Astra is another one that I really wanted to um, to bring up. And uh, I'll... Uh, Oh, oh, but oh, sorry. Okay, <laughs> I do. I do have one more point to make before I shut up. So the Batman, I, I, 
super immersive. 100% agree with you on that. You know, even if it's not necessarily science fiction, it is very much you completely, you know, just just live in in Gotham and that vision of Gotham. A lot of that is because they used almost entirely real world locations, but they juxtaposed and superimposed them with each other. So we have actual street corners, of course, in New York, but we also have street corners in Budapest and they're actually overlaid digitally with each other. So we see architectural skylines that we kind of recognize parts of, but they're displaced or they're truncated or they're moved around. So when we see, for example, something like, you know, Gotham Square Garden, which I brought up in our frame rate episode, right? Like our, our brain wants it to be Madison Square Garden, but it's it's just very much not. It feels like it could be in an alternate universe, Madison Square Garden, but it's, it's not. It's Gotham Square Garden. Garden. And that similarity to things that we recognize really lends to the, here's the word again, verisimilitude of the environment that we're watching. So I want to just go back to what I think does this better than anything and really set the, the template for immersive science fiction realities, which is Fritz Long's Metropolis from 1927, which we did a frame rate on about 700 years ago. But for those of you who you know haven't seen it before, it is a groundbreaking achievement and in most of the ways that we look at achievements in film, right? It was a, a groundbreaking film in terms of the special effects, in terms of the uh, the sort of classist themes that it gets into, which are kind of hackneyed and very much on the nose, but it's an expressionist movie. It's literally a German expressionist film. So it's sort of supposed to be hackneyed and on the nose and extreme, right? But what you have in, in Metropolis is this, this like the apotheosis of Bauhaus design, it's cubism, it's art deco, it's all of these crazy early 20th century art movements creating a city that has multiple levels in it created through the use of miniatures. And miniatures are a big reason why Blade Runner also feels so realistic because you can actually reach out and touch all of these things and it's filmed with such love. And not only do they use miniatures to do this, they use miniatures to recreate parts of the skylines of New York and Berlin and to jam them together into this city that isn't actually either of them, but it feels like it could be somehow in some way you know, a prismatic view of what those places would look like together. Um, and so something about the immersion of, of uh, Metropolis that I love is they actually invented a filmmaking technique called the shifting process or shifting. I don't know how to say shifting. There's an umlaut in there. And, the, and that process did what blue screen later on would do in that it allowed the actors to be shot using mirrors on those miniature sets so that they were shot at full size. And then the, the image was projected via a mirror onto the miniature and they could film the miniature with real people moving inside it. So when you watch Fritz Lang's Metropolis, which is coming up on its 100th anniversary, I'm just realizing as I say this, which is fucking crazy, you are watching a completely believable, if somewhat over the top, science fiction reality. And that is just an incredible achievement. Anyway, there's a lot in there. Thank you for letting me talk. There's a movie that we haven't discussed in terms of a futurist, a, a future of ours that's both brutalist and encompasses a lot of what's going on in Blade Runner 2049, which is Gattaca. And it also, it's, it's a world that is just is shown to us it seems pristine we were talking about that earlier how shiny new things don't feel very immersive but the world they're living in it seems pristine but it really isn't it's a dystopia they're living in it's a genetic dystopia they're living in it's a bit of a police state they're living in but the rich live the the upper class the the valids the people who were born from genetic engineering are living this really amazing life, but it's also not amazing. They're very scared. They have to, 
um, be on their guard. You have to be the best of what they do. And it's also very contained. We do see a little, a few things here and there. We see a building, most famously, it's the Cal Poly building, um, which is like eight miles away from me right now. And then there's another building in the San Francisco area that was used for some of the exteriors. But a lot of, a lot of cement buildings, a lot of uh, just very brutalist aesthetics used in this film. But it's a film that's a story about us and the human experience and what what that is to not be good enough in a environment that seems like you well an environment that is you will only survive if you're good enough and to be good enough you have to have been genetically engineered to be good enough you can't survive unless that has happened so you either win the lottery or you don't but that film really uh, directed by famously Andrew Nichol, who I absolutely love, who did The Truman Show, who did Simone or Sim One, if you want to call it that. Um, he also did um, a movie on Netflix, which I really highly recommend, which is a sci-fi. It's with Amanda Seyfried and Clive Owen. It's called An An Anon, Anon, something like that. Oh, Anon. Yeah, you never um, watched that. Yeah, very, very good. interesting. Very, it's very minimalist. Also, a little bit brutalist. Set in the future. It's about essentially relationships contextualized within this dynamic of technology. So technology is in many ways telling us how we can relate to each other. It's telling us who's worthy and who isn't. It's fascinating. But to get back to Gattaca, I just really feel like Gattaca is a film that hits on a lot of the notes that we're talking about in terms of a future that could be shiny, but it's also not um, because they're, on the outside it looks like one thing, but in, in the interior it's very, very different. A future that's also very dystopian. And I think about even what we've been through in the past two years in terms of the pandemic. And we, we famously have seen the very rich posting like, oh, I'll be on my yacht out in the Bahamas. They're, you know, they're okay. They're, you know, or... People like uh, Gal Gadot singing, you know, um, Imagine with all of her millionaire friends thinking, let's do this and let's be in solidarity. And then, you know, the whole world saying like, you might, this might make you feel good, but we're living in this. We don't have these luxuries. And Gattaca really shines a light on that, on the differences in, in the classes and what that's like, what, what the same world we live in is like for the very poor and for the very rich, and there's not a lot of room for anyone in between. So it's 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 a film that I can't recommend highly enough. A film that um, is a very strange choice for Visions of the Future is um, Eisenstein's sorry Eisenstein's Strike, um, which I think was made in 1925, and it and it's really not a vision of the future. Even in 1925, it was a vision of the past. It's it's described well, it's inspired by events which happened in 1912. Um, but the reason I mention this in this context is first of all, it is um, it's a description of kind of the working the life of working people in Tsarist Russia, um, and in that sense, it's highly dystopian. Um, and the other thing that I think is really interesting it about it in terms of developing a visual language. Um, and it was Patrick's um, comment about, um, about 
metropolis that kind of led me down this um, down this pathway. The other thing about it in terms of developing a visual language is Eisenstein's kind of remorseless interest in texture. Um, so um, he's Eisenstein's clearly been given a script that he's not very interested in, and um, therefore he's um, he's but he's interested in everything else. Um, he's interested in in the texture of factors particularly, um, and. One of the things he's really interested in is in industrial technology. So he lights it really beautifully and he shoots it really beautifully. And the people who are acting in the foreground kind of get in the way a little bit. Um, but the thing which I, when I first saw Strike I, and looking at all this industrial technology and, and his fascination with cogs and, and the circles is that um, the, 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 the um, starship that um, Princess Leah is on at the beginning of episode four. When you're out of those beautiful gleaming white corridors and you're into the kind of the, the more, um, the, the grayer environment um, where she sends um, 3PO and R2 off into the escape pod, it just looks like Eisenstein, it looks like Strike. Um, and I think the thing that Eisenstein is doing, which makes everything so immersive, is just this complete focus on texture, this complete focus on, on making the background look as real as it possibly could. Um, and yeah, and, and Eisenstein isn't afraid of grime. And obviously in Tsarist Russia for the working person, um, you know, grime is a really important part of life. So, yeah. So, yeah, sometimes shiny and new is immersive. Sometimes grime is immersive. And I, I think Eisenstein's giving us all of that. Um, and it's, you know, and it's a very, very industrial landscape, which kind of maps onto, onto future visions of Gotham and to Blade Runner and all of these kinds of things. So I think it's a really interesting early example of somebody who's not really presenting a vision of the future, but presenting a vision of, of a, a certainly dystopian vision and one which really pulls you in. Um, and again, yeah, it's um, weirdly, that, as I say, I'm not really particularly convinced by the plot. Um, I'm not really draw, drawn in by the, uh, you know, by the characters because there really aren't any characters. Um, but yeah, there's something about the way, the way he shoots it that, um, that is just very, very compelling and it does draw you in. So if you haven't seen Strike, you know, it's, it's worth um, two hours of your time, however long it, however long it is. Uh, just a quick question for Micah. What is it, you know, can you put your finger on what it is about Gotham that really, um, you know, really appeals to you in the latest Batman movie? I mean, I'll try. So, um, I mean, <laughs> it's not that it's raining all the time because it's literally raining all the time in that movie. Um, I think it's a combination of the sounds of the streets it's very there's always a like there's always noise whether it's the rain whether it's like people fighting um it's dirty like i do love the bale batman movies but that's chicago and it looks really clean it doesn't look different really than chicago except for the the wayne enterprises building but this gotham is um an amalgamation of the darkest parts of new york city and something totally different it's its own character almost and it's um i think the best part um spoiler alert if you haven't seen it don't listen to my comment um the opening monologue that we get to hear from bruce as we get little scene lits if you will uh, of alleyways and darkness of train stations and flickering lights and just grime and like trash and people homeless people there different nightclubs where it's like man you only go there if you are brave and it's just like the city is mean and i think that's what gotham is and i don't know if i can put um a finer tune on why it really does it for me but it's just it's 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 more of a character um and not a caricature 
like some of the Tim, I mean, I like, I, I'm not digging on the Tim Burton style Gotham. I, I love the gargoyles. I love the craziness of the, of the later, um, like the early nineties and two thousands of like Batman and Robin, all those. I love that. But this is like, if Gotham were a real place, it would look like that. It would look like it does in this movie here. And I just, I think they just went for it in the best way with this movie. Sorry, it's a bit vague. No, I think you're right on, Mike. I think Gotham is a character in the Batman, the way it's never been a character in any Batman. In the in the Burton films, it was a caricature of Gotham. Whereas in this, the closest thing, and Patrick and I have discussed this, the closest thing I've ever seen to Blade Runner, the original film, is is the Batman. I've never seen a world this immersive. And also, you guys, both Micah and Patrick, have both been in downtown L.A. within the past two years. You've seen it. It's dirty. It's grimy. There's homeless people everywhere. It's arresting. It's doesn't. Sometimes it's cool. Sometimes it isn't. There's a lot going on there. Gotham feels like this a little bit, but it's not downtown L.A. either. But it feels it has that texture about it. I've been to San Francisco recently. There's more homeless in the middle of downtown San Francisco than there are actual people who live in downtown San Francisco. It's full of tents and full of people. In downtown San Francisco, very rich areas. It's just overrun. LA is becoming the same thing. And the in Gotham really, really, really picks that up. And it's what I love about it is it's unflinching. This is reality. It's almost shocking to people, but to those of us who have grown up in the city or who have been, you know, Patrick and Mikey. And I know, Robin, you go to London all the time. Having been to London recently, there are parts, a lot of London is dark and foreboding and atmospheric and arresting and scary. Um, and it doesn't mean it is, but it feels that way. And Gotham just took all of that and layered it and said, here we go. But also not making it identifiable. It's, I, I want to go see Batman, the Batman again, just for the city it's that amazing have you seen it robin no i haven't oh uh, covid has has robbed me of all of the people i want to go and see it with oh, i mean not robbed me in a lethal sense but just robbed me in a kind of you know oh can't come this week i've got covid sense so yeah i was gonna say that was a that would have been very dark that would have been <laughs> all the people you've seen movies with well i yeah. think it, what we're talking about it goes back to like this whole episode has been about creating a world that feels lived in. And I think Gotham has achieved that. Um, I'm happy to say that in my opinion, Gotham has achieved that because it it made a world where it's like, oh, you know, I would not walk alone on those streets, right? I feel that like, cause that's a real sense. That's a human reaction to something. That's a human reaction to an environment and that environment's not real. So it's going back to what we've been talking about this entire time, which is like, it feels tangible. It feels like I can touch the cement of the bank there in Gotham. Or like I said before, it feels like I can touch the side of the Millennium Falcon and be like, oh, I hope I don't break it. You know, it's not a sleek CGI, like computer thing that's not there. It's achieved this like grounded sense. And um, yeah, I think that's what we've been getting at this whole time. But the, uh, the irony here is, the Batman isn't a sci-fi. It's immersive, but it's not a sci-fi, which I think it's it's showing us, in some ways it's showing us a future and a past, but it's not either. Right. It's just an alternate reality. And I think, uh, you know, I, I, unfortunately, we have to bring this somewhat to a close soon, but I, I think something that you're all getting at is that in immersive science fiction, 
we're presented with so much to see, so much to hear, so much to feel from, you know, at least it feels like we can feel it, that to navigate the film, we actually have to engage our senses. And that's something that a lot of movies never do. A lot of movies just let us sit there and watch it, but we can't watch a film like Blade Runner or 2001 A Space Odyssey or Fahrenheit 451. We have to engage our senses and then live it. So when we do that, we put ourselves into the film because there is too much stimulation in it to just sit there. And I mean, you could sit there and passively watch it, but you would miss out on so much stuff. So to try to even, you know, get at a, a small sampling of it, we have to like put ourselves into the film and we have to experience it ourselves. And a major reason why a movie like Blade Runner works so well for every different subjective viewer is because we all have different viewings of it because we're all paying attention to different things. I mean, I'll never forget the first time I met you know, on um, mass, other Blade Runner fans was our live event. And there were people there with costumes that I didn't even know were from Blade Runner movies before because I had never seen them in the background. And then I go back and I freeze the frame and I'm like, holy shit, there are costumes that I just never even noticed in the back of this movie, let, let alone costumes. I mean, insignias on costumes, right? There are there are people with badges that I haven't seen until somebody got a 4K release you know, or a higher resolution release of the film and froze a frame on it. And they're like, oh, it's actually this symbol and not that symbol. So my point being that every one of us sees great movies like this differently. And that's really a hallmark of really good science fiction that is immersive, I think. So, yeah, so there's obviously this could go on hugely longer than it will. And, and we'll do a part two on this as well. But um, I, I invite anybody to add any closing thoughts to that end as we uh, bring this puppy home. Yeah, I want to say something about grime versus kind of shiny and bright and new. Um, and one thing that strikes me is that um, in the middle of the 20th century, there are these two great new, um, dystopian novels, both of which kind of set templates for um, for visions of the future from then on. And one of them is Brave New World. And Brave New World is the antiseptic utopia, where everything is shiny and everything's made of, um, every, you know, everything's wiped clean and everything's new and everything's new every day because people, you know, um, the whole point is this hyper-consumerism. So people buy stuff, they wear it once, they throw it away, and then they buy more stuff. So everything is permanently new. Um, the other one, of course, is 1984. And 1984, there's grime on every single page, and there's grime on people's skin, and there's grime on the walls, and everything is decaying, and everything is getting worse. And, and you know, clothes are full of holes, um, and no one has, you know, and, and, and poverty is kind of generalized. Um, and it seems to me that um, what they, these two dystopias doing, and we can see kind of e um, echoes of, of Brave New World in Fahrenheit 451, and we can see echoes echoes of Brave New World, particularly in Gattaca. And we can see echoes of 1984, perhaps more in Blade Runner. Um and in kind of um and in, in um, you know other, other dystopias. Um I think what they do is they give us um they give us two different ways of dehumanizing people. One way of dehumanizing people is, is making them live in an antiseptic environment where they seem to be, where their very physicality seems to be at odds with the environment they're in. And the other way of dehumanizing people is to starve them and to make them live in filth and, um, you know, and, and, you know, and, and perpetual noise and perpetual grime. So, yeah, so, and both of these things are, are dangers in the modern world. And both of these things are dangers in the modern world, which haven't gone away. So I was just thinking that behind 
all of this, there are these two great dystopias. One final dystopia, which is even behind behind them, is H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, which also contains these two elements. There's the kind of civilization of the Eloi on the surface of the planet, which seems to be all shiny. Not shiny and new, but certainly shiny and pretty antiseptic. And then there's the underworld of the Morlocks, um, which is industrial and dark. And, you know, we don't get much of a view of it, but, you know, that those two things are there. So maybe these are, if you, as we do live in the modern world, these are two of the dangers that we face. And that's one of the reasons they occur again and again and again in different iterations in science fiction. So that would be my closing thought. Yeah, it's sort of, and, and building from that and sort of what we've all been talking about, I think my closing thought is the fact that listening to, to Micah and your guys' description of, of Gotham in the new movie sounds amazing. I have not seen it, um, but definitely not for lack of interest. Um, but, you know, I, it brings me to what I think is most likely, I mean, if I had to pick the most realistic of what I believe the future is going to be similar to would be, you know, a movie like The Road, which again, I think straddles that line of visit science fiction. Is it just simply um, a, a future dystopia? Um, I don't think it's really science fiction. But you have a movie like that that shows what I believe will be most likely um, a future for the planet, less humans, um, sort of more, less interaction, um, similar to, you know, a a lot of what the last two years have been like for uh, several people, you know, all over the world, more than several. (laughs) Um, But, you know, you take something like that and what is probably more realistic, and then you have to, you know, the great difficulty is then in science fiction, showing that futurism portion of it, and so from what I'm hearing of, you know, Gotham, it, it sounds like an amazing representation of a, of a future mega city, a future city. But, you know, sort of the, the thing that it didn't have to do is then show that futurism. And I think, again, that's where Blade Runner sets itself apart. It's, it's, a, it's a city we can find ourselves in. It's, it feels similar. It feels like street corners we've been on, but yet then there's, you know, the biggest or most fantastical version of it is, you know, a spinner flying by or more likely um, the, 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 the mishmash of, of the culture of the language or, you know, just having, you know, actual replicants on the street. And again, I think that's the biggest accomplishment of Blade Runner is finding that re- realism um, the scarcity, the mundane, and somehow still having the ability to have that science fiction element and not making it so real that it almost is somewhere you don't want to be. Again, a movie like The Road, you don't want to go there. It sounds like Gotham is not a city in the new movie you want to be in, but then Blade Runner's LA is it's somewhere you want to go experience if just as a tourist and hopefully you can get off worlds shortly thereafter. But that's, I think the biggest accomplishment um, and achievement. In closing for me, um, when Patrick presented this idea or this topic of futurism, that word to me is, is a complicated word. What does that mean? What is, what is science fiction and what is the future? Those can be separate things. Um, there's again escapism and there's a reality and what what is it what are we barreling towards we had a whole like a two-part series on this in 2020 about um i can't 
remember exactly the title of the show, but they're one-off shows that were a cross between Shoulder of Orion and Perfect Organism, where we talked about the future being now and just our dystopia um, that we were kind of living in in those couple of years that we're kind of still in and out of. The world is in a very precarious place, and now with everything going on in the Ukraine and just everything's just is such at such a heightened level right now. Um, every The world feels like it's on the edge of a cliff. And it's felt like that since March of 2020. And it really hasn't returned from that. Things might be getting better, but they don't feel better. Um, I mean, we have moments of it. But as I ponder what the future is and what sci-fi is, I don't know if I have an answer because I know part of me loves escapism, but a larger part of me likes to process the, and I, I, I call futurists, certainly futurists of the 70s and the 80s, they weren't just futurists, they were prophets. These people are historically prophets. They're telling us, they were warning us, these things are coming. I mean, most famously, look at Contagion, which is kind of like a, they call that a, not a sci-fi film, but like a, they call it something else, was a similar- Speculative. speculative yeah, fiction. like speculative fiction. Um, but it was predicting a world of, well, this could happen and what, what might happen if this does happen. And there were other films and shows doing the same thing, saying there's an outbreak, there's an outbreak. In fact, we had z- zombie everything for a while, and all of those stories started off with an outbreak of a contagion. So what these storytellers were actually doing were predicting the future. Something is coming. There was a whole 10-part series on Netflix. I think it was 10-part. It might have been six-part. That had premiered in 2019 about a virus. And they're like, oh, we're not ready. We're not ready. Something's coming. And then six, four months later, boom, something happens. So for me, when I engage this idea of futurism, it's hard to even know what that is any, anymore because I feel like the future of of Stanley Kubrick, the future of so many, even Steven Spielberg's AI, which we haven't discussed, um, and the robotic future, which I think is something we need to get into eventually in another episode. I think those things are a bit of a thing of the past. That's not a future we're heading towards. We're heading towards a future, a science fiction future of of lack, of of desperation, and of dystopia, along with all of our high-tech gadgets and gizmos that we still have that are still coming out. So I'm excited to continue to talk about this and to kind of process what this is, because I don't really know. You know, we may not know what the future holds. <clears throat> we may not know what tomorrow brings, but we do know that we have some new patrons to thank tonight. And for them, <laughs> we are extreme. That's a terrible transition, but I, I just want to say a special shout out on behalf of all of us here tonight, which is, this is the full hosting staff of the show all, all together at one time, which is amazing. Again, thank you, Dr. Bunce, for joining in the middle of the night. Uh, but we all thank the following people tremendously for their patronage. John Martino, Lee D, Ben Rush, our very good friend, Mark Deckard, rejoining at a very uh, kind rate. Thank you very much, Mark, for that. Greg Bromley and Marcus, who uh, does not have a last name, but doesn't need one because you're on the website as Marcus and you're the only one. So keep it. <laughs> um, we are really grateful for all of you. We are about to put out an audio drama for Perfect Organism to celebrate Alien Day, which was directly supported by you all and your support. We have uh, you know, a full hosting staff with microphones tonight, which was largely responsible for which you were largely responsible for providing the funds for that. 
So thank you so much to all of you for your support. And if you are interested in joining this amazing group of people, you can go to bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support, or you can look us up on Patreon. We just put out a Jaws Sublime Noise episode two days ago, which is a very deep dive score analysis into John Williams' seminal work on Jaws. Uh, we do Sublime Noise. We also do Frame Rate. We just did one on Matt Reeves' The Batman, which we've talked about quite a bit tonight, which is also there waiting for you. So uh, if you can help us out, we would love it. And hopefully you will feel repaid in return with all this great content that you're helping support. Thanks, everyone. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.